Experts claim there is nothing tougher than a diamond. But at Diamonds Direct, we beg to differ. Have you ever met a mother? Strong, radiant, timeless. This Mother's Day, give her the gift that meets her match. With diamond jewelry starting at $200, plus Diamonds Direct's exceptional quality and unbeatable everyday price, you're sure to give her a gift that wows this generation and the next to come. Experience the thrill of jewelry shopping done right at Diamonds Direct. Diamonds Direct. Your love, our passion. Enjoy all your favorite sports like never before at BetMGM. Signing up and playing is so easy. Simply sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. When you register with BetMGM, you can get instant access to a variety of parlay selection features, live betting options, and the best daily promotions in the business. And with BetMGM at your fingertips, every play and every game matter more than ever. Place your money line, prop, and parlay bets with the king of sports books today. Sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets. If you don't win your first bet. That's right, up to $1,500. Again, sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. BetMGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. 21 plus in President, Ohio, subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER in partnership with MGM Northfield Park. That's 1-800-GAMBLER. Hey, this is Christina Quinn. I'm the host of Try This, the Washington Post's new series of audio courses. The idea behind Try This is to become better functioning humans without having to comb the internet for countless hours. In our first course, we learned how to sleep better. Now, we're going to learn how to make our friendships stronger. I'll offer expert tips that are doable, and I'll keep it short. So let's do this. Glasses in session. Find Try This from the Washington Post wherever you listen. Xfinity has free premium networks for everyone this month, no matter what kind of entertainment you love. Addicted to true crime? Catch killer cases and more spine-tingling shows on A&E Crime Central. Crave adventure? Explore Asian action movies on Hayah. Searching for something extreme? Check out skating, snowboarding, and more on Fuel TV Plus, the global home of action sports. And find crowd-pleasing bops on iHeartRadio's Hit Nation playlist. There's new free shows and movies to love every week. Say free this week in your Xfinity voice remote. Oh, 
are going back to work. According to the latest report from the Labor Department, the U.S. economy added 943,000 jobs in July. The unemployment rate fell to 5.4 percent, which is the lowest it's been during the pandemic. Once again, the leisure and hospitality industry saw the most significant gains, adding 380,000 jobs last month, including positions for over 250,000 bartenders and food service workers. Earlier today, President Joe Biden emphasized it was his administration's initiative that brought us here. What is indisputable now is this. The Biden plan is working. The Biden plan produces results. And the Biden plan is moving the country forward. We're now the first administration in history to add jobs every single month on our first six months in office. And the only one in history to add more than four million jobs during the first six months. Economic growth is the fastest in 40 years. Jobs are up. The unemployment rate is the lowest since the pandemic hit. Black unemployment is down as well. That was that was President Biden talking about the efforts that his administration is making to bring jobs. Now, tonight, we wanted to start off the conversation about jobs and how they impact black and brown communities, specifically as Americans are looking to go back to work, considering all of the changes from COVID-19 to job changes and losses, what is going to be the future of the labor market, of the job market? We're going to check in. Joining us to discuss the latest job report is Dr. Kristen Brody. She's a fellow in the Metropolitan Policy Program at Brookings Institute, Institution. Dr. Brody, thank you so much for joining us. How are you, Sue? I'm well, and I'm happy to be here. We are happy to have you. Uh, Dr. Brody, I want, to, I want to start off this conversation talking with you about Understanding what does this number of 943, I, you know, I know that we often have this as a metric of whether the country is, quote unquote, moving forward or not. But what does this really mean? When we hear that the country has added 943 new jobs in July, what does that actually mean? 
So Roland's audience will know that I love to disaggregate numbers and tell the whole story. So yes, um, we did add 943,000 jobs this month, which is great. Um, overall, the story seems to be an improvement for everybody except for black teens. So I want to give one, one more number. While we saw that increase, the number of people who are not in the labor force, but who currently want a job, who want to work, is 6.5 million. And that's mm. up from 6.4 million in June and is 1.5 million greater than it was in February 2020. So when you look at the unemployment rate, yes, it's decreasing, but it doesn't count everybody who does not have a job and want one. There are people, if you haven't looked for a job in the last four weeks, then you're not counted in that number. So I think the first step is we need to consider these 6.5 million people who want a job and don't have one. Then I guess mm -hmm. if we look at the, the overall rate, we know that the, the U.S. unemployment rate was 5.4% down from 5.9 last month, 4.8% um, for white people, 5.3 for Asian Americans, 6.6 for Latinos, but 8.2% for Black Americans. So even though it's down from 9.2 last month, it is still the highest. And, and I guess the story is, is really interesting for Black teens because their rate in June was 9.3%. It's the only rate that increased, and it increased significantly to 13.3% um, last month. And so if we're looking at those numbers, and I'm so happy that you brought it up because I think that's that's really the indicator. I mean, we started off, in, like you mentioned, 9.2. Now we're down to 8.4. We're still almost double than what, what well, I'm sorry, 8.2. And we're still almost double what, what we've seen from, from, white, uh, from, from whites and Asians. Uh, it still seems like we are still very far off uh, from from understanding how to handle this situation. What, what is contributing to this level of disparity, Dr. Brody? So happy that you asked. So if we look at um, vaccination numbers, um, the CDC reports that of people for who race is known, 58.1% um, of people who have gotten vaccinated, we know their, their race. And so 61.2% are white, 17.2% are Latino or Hispanic, only 12.4% are black, and that, that's one dose, right? So we know that African-Americans are also overrepresented in customer-facing jobs like cashiers or servers or in, in the medical field, caretaking roles, whether it's taking care of children or ill people or elderly people. And so we know that those jobs put people at higher risk of getting COVID. So basically, we're seeing that these people, their, our unemployment rates were always lower. Um, and so these things are just exacerbating those rates. So nobody wants to go to work putting themselves at risk of getting COVID. And then we still have to think about child care and transportation issues. Those problems have not been solved for the people who need it most. So, so and, and that brings me to that other question, which was, you know, which jobs are we seeing kind of weathering the storm of COVID or is kind of weathering the storm? I mean, can we get any indicators um, which industries are surviving at this moment from looking at this, this latest job report? Yeah, so I think we're seeing increases in leisure and hospitality as people are going out to eat again and people are traveling again. The mask yeah. mandate was lifted and, and airlines were back to full capacity. Now we're seeing mask mandates come back because of the Delta variant. But Americans are smart, right? And, and they know that if they're gonna be a cashier or a cook or a flight attendant or whatever all of these customer-facing jobs are, 
nobody wants to put themselves at risk of getting COVID, especially if the people that they're serving are taking care are taking care of have not had the vaccine or don't have to wear a mask. Yeah. Yeah. And I'm wondering, Doc, if we're talking about the mask mandate, um, getting back to that place, and there has been, at least in the state of Maryland here, there's been some conversation about, uh, you know, whether we're going to go back on lockdown. Dr. Fauci, you know, he, he, he said, no, that doesn't seem to be the case. But with this new policy that we're seeing coming out of New York City, where folks are saying, hey, um, you're going to need to have a vaccination card. I mean, how do you think all of these factors will play into even affecting those lesion the lesion hospitality in uh, industry? I think we, we've seen starts and stops because in the very beginning, the CDC said that you didn't need to wear a mask. And then, of course, they said that we did. And then you didn't have to wear a mask if you were vaccinated. And now with the Delta variant and the Delta Plus variant, um, many cities and, and municipalities and businesses are saying that you should wear a mask indoors, even if you have been vaccinated. So I'm not an epidemi epidemiologist, never claimed to be, um, but I really can't say. I think that as more people get vaccinated that, you know, we should be able to slow this thing down. But with these new variants, um, we know that it's going to be getting colder soon. People aren't going to be able to do as much outside. So if we don't get ahead of this, before winter comes, we may be back in a lockdown. I, I really can't tell you, but um, I, I think it's possible. And as you know, as we wrap up this part of the conversation, Doc, uh, what do we do with this information? How do we use this information, this latest data, to empower um, our people, uh, to empower folks, to empower employers to get to get people back to work? So I think the first thing is that we need to stop saying that people who aren't working are lazy or that they don't want to work. Yes, companies are offering bonuses. Some of them are one-time bonuses. But we have to understand why people aren't going back to work. Have they been vaccinated? Do they have child care? Is the job somewhere where they can get to it? Do they have internet at home to even know that the job exists? So I think the first step is just to figure out who the people are that are in need and really why they aren't working. And to help help folks understand that, yeah, people are getting these stimulus benefits, these unemployment benefits, but it kind of lets us know that we need to raise wages, right? I mean, if it is true that someone is making more from these benefits than they would have been making at work, that's a problem with wages, not yeah. with work. Absolutely, absolutely. Dr. Kristen Brody, we appreciate your time with us tonight to give us some insight about uh, this latest report and this new jobs, and most importantly, its impact on black and brown communities. Thank you, Doc, we appreciate you. Thank you. Absolutely, I wanna bring in our panel tonight to give us some more details and their thoughts about what they're seeing coming out of the job market. We're joined by Brother Michael M. Holchep, who serves as the host for the African History Network show. Dr. Nyan B. Carter, who serves as a professor uh, at Howard University for the Department of Political Science, and Kelly Bethia of JD Communications. She's a strategist for JD Communications. Uh, Brother Michael, Dr. Carter, Kelly, thank you so much for being on the show with us tonight. Thank hey, you, thanks, Raji. You're doing a great job. Oh, thank you so much. Uh, Brother Michael, let, let, let's start with you, because this is, um, you know, when we have conversations about economic development, when we have conversations sure. about uh, what's happening, you know, how do we get our people back into the job market? I'm not hearing too much, and I could be totally wrong with this, but I'm just not hearing 
us having a conversation in light of the latest numbers and some of the things that Dr. Uh, Kristen Brody shared with us. How do we how do we have a conversation about these numbers, the the uh, unemployment rate being at 8.2 percent, and at the same time coming up with some ways to get our people back to work? Well, um, that's why this show is so important. An uh, in-depth analysis from an African American economist focusing on this jobs report and how it impacts African Americans. This is going to be one of the few places that we have this conversation. Uh, mm -hmm. If we look at the numbers, now she talked about 6.5 million African Americans who are looking for employment but can't find it. That's the U6 number, okay? The U3 number is the 8.2 percent. The U3 number is, the, see, there's six different unemployment rates, okay? Mm -hmm. the, 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 the rate that you hear, uh, the 8.2 that's the U3 number. U3 deals with uh, people who've looked for employment in the past four weeks. Okay, now uh, people who have stopped looking for employment but still want a job, okay, they're not counted in that 8.2%. So one of the things that's important is to break down what these different numbers mean. And I encourage people to go to bls.gov, Bureau of Labor Statistics, bls.gov. You can read the unemployment. You can read the unemployment report there or the jobs report there, and find out what these different numbers mean. The other thing that's important to note, now this ties into uh, what happened this past Monday. This past Monday, August 2nd, was Black Women's Equal Pay Day. Black Women's Black Equal Pay Black Day marks um, the day that the average African-American woman has to work until until the next year to make the same amount of money that the average white male made the previous 12 months. So it takes the average African-American woman 20 months to make the same amount of money that the average white male made in 12 months. Uh, the average African-American woman makes 63 cents on the dollar. If we look at this piece here from CNBC.com, it talks about how African-Americans are participating in the labor force at close to the same rate as whites, yet earn 23 percent less on a mm. weekly basis of $799 compared to $1,012 uh, uh, a week. So a lot of this has to do with the type of jobs that we're in, access to the jobs as well. Um, one of the things that's extremely important, and I, and I used to work in job placement, I used to work for a job placement company that focused on African-American communities. One of the things that is, is extremely important is having culturally competent recruiters, culturally competent, especially African-American recruiters, who are more sensitive to our issues, more sensitive to our needs, because we were able to get a lot of um, African-Americans employed once we focused on things like uh, how to market yourself as a problem solver. Um, not just not just having a good resume, but do, performing well in the interviewing process. A lot of us get killed in the interviewing process. And the other thing when it comes to technology, and I wrap up with this, when it comes to technology, one of the things that knocks us out is the optical character of recognition when you apply online for a job. The, when you apply online, this is an inside secret. They're looking for keywords that are already in the uh, uh, in the uh, uh, job posting. Okay, you score higher and get more callbacks if you put those keywords in your resume and in your application. It scores mm -hmm. higher based upon what they're looking for. A lot of us don't know stuff like that, so we automatically get locked out because of technology. Mm. Dr. Carter, I want to get your take on this as well, because just as much as this is a, a, an economic issue, it's certainly a political issue. And we often hear um, political officials and leaders talking about bringing jobs back. But I'm wondering, in the, in the era of COVID-19, 
does that even make a difference? Is that going to move the needle to bring some level of equity, equality, some sort of, um, uh, you know, any type of assurance or comfort to the millions of black Americans in this country that are kind of displaced and trying to figure out where the next meal is coming from? I mean, I think the short answer to that is no, right, for many of the reasons that Michael just outlined. But I think this is one of the things that we always have to talk about when we're talking about these unemployment numbers, is that if you always look at the black statistic, it's always double the national mm -hmm. average, right? So right, right now, black unemployment is around 10 percent, uh, somewhere in that range. And again, Michael is right to point out, it does not capture those people who have decided that they're going to stop looking. Right, those people who said, I'm, I'm finished, right? Um, this is doing nothing for me. So it's a nice point to make ahead of midterms, right? Because we're about to start that election cycle. It's a nice point to make when you're thinking about that next presidential election, which quite frankly just keeps getting closer and closer to us in the midst of a surge in COVID. And I think it also sort of brings up sort of the perverse nature of this pandemic. So on the one hand, blacks have been extremely harmed by unemployment, but then we're employed in sectors where we are overrepresented, um, right, or, or um, exposed to COVID-19 at the same time. So black people are both underemployed and employed in places where they are at great risk for contracting COVID. And so it's a really sort of rough thing when you start talking about these unemployment numbers. And as Dr. Brody rightly pointed out, once you sort of disaggregate, it's not just that it's black people, it's young black people in particular that are being locked out and that are finding themselves time and time again outside of this great growth that Joe Biden and other presidents before him have talked about. So I don't think this does anything for those people to bring them any comfort, particularly when people are still hurting financially. The stimulus is still, um, you know, a shaky thing for many people, right? It's just not enough of it, and it's not on time enough. When we just had Representative Bush and, and others having to sleep on the Capitol steps to push an eviction right. moratorium another month, but we all know October will be here, and people will still be without employment, with housing insecure, and without all the other things they need uh, to make their, their start. Absolutely. Kelly? No, I echo the sentiments of the panel, but I also wanted to point out um, just how uh, insidious COVID was to the job market. A lot of people aren't really considering the fact that a large part of our job market died this year. Over 600,000 people died in less than 18 months. And a good chunk of those people, I'm not saying every single person was working, but a good chunk, a good percentage of that 600,000 was the workforce. So for people who are complaining of, you know, uh, how come people aren't going into work, how come, you know, anything, any complaint that is happening regarding COVID and jobs and job increases, the workforce died. A large chunk of the workforce died last year. And another point um, that has been echoed uh, on this panel already, but the fact that people are finally realizing their worth in the job market is a huge reason why people aren't going back into the job market as quickly right now. The fact that we have been stuck in the house for almost two years, I mean, let's just face it, almost two years, so and we were just as productive yeah. We were just as productive. We were just as hardworking, if not more productive, and got more deliverables out by being in one spot and not having to worry about traffic, not having to worry about office politics, not having to worry about 
the, the little nuances that actually get in the way of your job that you have to encounter because you have a job. Those things went away during uh, quarantine. And people liked that, especially black people. The fact that I did not have to deal with office politics and race relations was very refreshing to me. The fact that I could just do my work. For a lot of black people, this is the closest thing to the white experience in the job market we've ever had. I'm not going back to an environment, you know, hypothetically speaking, I'm not going back to an environment in which I feel unsafe as a black woman, in which I feel undervalued as an employee, in which I feel like just a number or a token when when I'm at home, I'm not, not only am I none of those things, but I'm actually better at what I do. So those are things to consider. And if employers out there aren't considering those things, they're in for a shock when it comes to this job pool and why they're not getting the quality candidates that they want and need. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. Well, we're going to certainly have to see how things unfold, but I hope that at least this part of the conversation will get people thinking and inspired to, to get more involved. And like you said, Brother Michael, making sure that the organizations and institutions and spaces that are in our community will do their part to, um, to get folks back to work. Thank you so much. Folks, the Chicago Police Department has been slapped with a lawsuit by a family who was the victim of another botched raid. Now, back in 2019, the Winters family was at home when they heard a loud banging on their front door. that an officer pointed guns at the thin four-year-old and nine-year-old sisters, Rangshala and Savila. Uh, unfortunately, the Chicago Police Department is known for these kinds of botched raids. Now, um, I want to show this, this, this graphic of wrongful raids in Chicago. A CBS investigation uncovered more than 10 families whose homes were wrongly raided by Chicago police, including an incident where officers pointed a gun at a three-year-old in 2013. Mm. Joining us now is Al Holfield, Jr., the Winters family attorney. Mr. Holfield, thank you so much for joining us here on Roland Martin Unfiltered. How are you? It's my pleasure, and thank you very much for having me. I appreciate it. You're welcome. Mr. Hofeld, let's talk a little bit about this situation. Um, as we can see the video, and the more and more, I have to be honest with you, sir, the more and more I see video of police interaction and engagement with citizens, it's, I, I, I mean, you know, you're busting into the door, you're disturbing the home. There's, there's the, this whole thing about pointing guns at children. 
I mean, this this is getting to a point for me, Mr. Hofeld, as I'm watching this, that it's, 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 it's beyond enough is enough. But to, tell us about, first and foremost, how is the Winters family holding up after this whole situation? Well, <clears throat> it's been two years uh, since this raid, which was in August of 2019. And uh, Rashila and Savela are still having real difficulty um, with uh, their emotions, with the trauma that, uh, scar that has scarred them. Uh, when I was out uh, at the family's house um, on the 4th of July, actually, the morning of the 4th of July, um, and I spoke to uh, Rashila and I asked her about what happened. Um, she, uh, she gets completely silent. She looks mm -hmm. down and then tears start to stroll uh, stream down her, her face. She is unable, or she, until very recently, she was unable to verbalize, uh, to, to even talk about in words um, what happened to her and her sister and how scared they were. Uh, at the time it happened, um, one of the girls wet their bed. Um, they were frozen with fear. Uh, the other girl, uh, Savela was crying, um, and since that incident, since that day two years ago, they've continued to have nightmares, um, trouble falling asleep, um, difficulty concentrating. Uh, Rashila has started to uh, act out by uh, cutting up clothing of her. She'll, she cuts up her new pajamas and other none of these none of these behaviors none of these uh, things were issues for the kids before this police raid two years ago and they're still living with it and they're unfortunately uh, you know it's likely that they're going to continue to live with it for some time has the family uh, gotten any type of therapy or therapeutic support for Rashad and Savannah? You know, they've had some. Uh, it's not, you know, it's not necessarily, you know, if you don't have uh, private health insurance, um, you don't necessarily get the best psychological care and counseling. Mm. Um, we do work with uh, some uh, therapists who, who have a trauma clinic down at the University of Chicago. It's federally funded. Um, so we're in the process of getting them additional counseling and treatment. And, you know, certainly one of the goals of the lawsuit is to recover more than enough money to support uh, high quality ongoing uh, care and counseling for them for some years to come. And so since this is a part, Mr. Hofeld, this is a part of a larger federal lawsuit. Is that correct, sir? This is this is one case uh, of uh, 11 that that my firm has brought. Um, the graphic that you showed was terrific. Um, seven of those cases uh, in your graphic are, are cases that my firm has brought. We've brought a total of about, about 11. All of them, all of them raise um, and focus on this issue of pointing guns at young children 
and, and let's be clear, we're talking about young children of color. This, this does not happen by and large in white neighborhoods in Chicago. Um, this pattern of pointing guns at close range directly at young children of color uh, is the same across these cases. Um, at, at the press conference the other morning, one of the things I said was, uh, this is a different family, but it's the same case all over again. Um, this has been a longstanding practice, as you pointed out. This has been a longstanding practice of the Chicago Police Department. It's gone on for decades in Chicago. Um, the Department of Justice in 2017 said, uh, among other things, uh, CPD, you have a, a pattern and practice of engaging in less lethal, excessive force against children. And they specifically cited and discussed examples of pointing guns at kids. Um, it's not only gun pointing. There's a lot of other forms of excessive force against kids. Um, but, but because we cannot, um, because it's very difficult to bring this kind of case as a class action, what we, we have done something similar, um, but it's not technically a class action. Instead, we've brought um, multiple uh, lawsuits, you know, each one uh, by a handful of family members. And mm -hmm. I'm, I'm, I'm sad to say that we still have other cases like this that are teed up um, and getting ready to be filed. And so, and, and, and I'm, I'm wondering, Mr. Hofeld, when, when we're talking about the pattern of, of excessive force by the Chicago the Police Department, if it's that much of an issue, is this a part of their training? Are they trained to point guns at children? Yeah, so there, uh, <laughs> it, it's a good question. I, I mean, so the problem is um, there is no clear, bright line rule uh, about when Chicago officers are allowed to draw their weapons and point them at civilians. Wait a minute. Okay. No, okay. Yeah. Okay. So, so there's, so there's no clear bright line rules about that. So you mean to tell me that this choice, this decision comes from the judgment of a police officer who feels like it is the necessary decision, the necessary move to point a gun at a four-year-old during yep, that, a raid. That, that's exactly right. So they're, what they're taught is that, you know, you're allowed to point your weapon uh, when your safety is threatened or maybe when somebody's non-compliant or resisting or, or whatever. They're, so they're taught, they're taught a sort of vague general use of force standard. And then beyond that, yes, they're allowed to use their discretion as to when they think there's a threat. Um, uh, but of course, constitutional law is very clear that you are an officer is not allowed to point at someone who is fully compliant who does not pose a, spe a specific threat to that officer or to anyone else. Um, and the law 
is especially clear than when it comes to vulnerable people like young children. Uh, there's there's no reason uh, to, to point at them. Um, so, uh, but officers have uh, this broad discretion within these general sort of use of force principles and guidelines. And, and obviously what happens, you know, in Chicago, officers come on too strong. They're, uh, they're, they come out of the box using way too much force, partly because maybe they're trying to protect themselves, partly because, you know, we have a, a problem with racism. We've got officers who are, don't see uh, other human beings as fully human. Um, so all these things come into play when they're using their discretion. And yes, uh, they often wind up pointing at kids or at other civilians uh, who are innocent when there's, when there's no objective reason to do so. I, and, and, I, you know, that's just one of the details about this whole case that is disturbing. I mean, alongside of the fact that they got the wrong address. So I don't want us to minimize the trauma that has been inflicted just down to one detail. There have been many things. I mean, just the fact of busting through your door late at night and you got, like, you know, army gear on damn near, uh, coming through your home with, you know, guys just yelling and screaming is is another element. But I, I do want to make sure that we bring up this point, too, that, uh, and, you know, I know that Mayor Lightfoot, of the mayor of Chicago, has said that they're going to try to do a better job. The police superintendent, David Brown, said they're going to try to really deal with this issue. Can you talk to us a little bit about what is supposed to be the process for getting warrants, making sure that botched, botched raids don't continue to happen. What's, what's the process? Because there is an investigative component to getting warrants, to, to making sure that the, you know, whatever information is coming to the police department is good information, not just, you know, some willy-nilly stuff. So what is the process? Because there is an actual legal process to, uh, that, that the police department need to oblige by before a raid is done, correct? Yes, absolutely. So uh, I'll tell you the process, then I'll tell you the way it's been done, then I'll briefly tell you the reforms that, at least on paper, have been made recently in Chicago. Um, I will note that the, the Evans-Winters case that we've been talking about was a warrantless entry. This particular case, there was no warrant involved, but there still has to be a probable cause, and there has to be a little bit of an investigation to support probable cause. But the other cases, uh, the other cases that are on your graphic, almost every other uh, case on the graphic was a search warrant case, a, a bad search warrant case where they raided the wrong home. Um, so generally, uh, as people know, an officer is required to have probable cause uh, before requesting a search warrant from a judge. So the officer conducts an investigation um, and when he or she has enough facts to constitute probable cause, uh, he or she writes it up into a complaint for search warrant uh, and signs it under oath. Uh, so it's an affidavit, essentially, or a declaration. Uh, it's, it's sworn testimony by the officer. The officer then presents that to um, 
be a judge. Um, and uh, I should say, crucially, that an officer relies on uh, an informant of some kind uh, for the tip that uh, is the basis for the investigation and that leads to the probable cause. So the officer is always relying on uh, a John Doe informant or a confidential informant or a registered confidential informant. Um, when the officer submits the complaint for search warrant to a judge, if it's a John Doe, uh, if it's a John Doe informant, that person may be brought before the judge as well. The judge reads the complaint for search warrant, is supposed to assess it for probable cause, uh, ask any questions to the officer um, or the John Doe informant, and then make a decision on whether to approve the search warrant or not. And in Chicago, at least, I think it's similar elsewhere. There's an assistant state's attorney or an assistant district attorney that is also supposed to review the complaint for search warrant uh, before it goes to the judge um, to, again, try to make sure that it appears to state enough facts for probable cause. Once, assuming a judge signs off on it, uh, then it goes back to the police and the police have uh, about 72 hours in which to execute the search warrant. So that's the process. Um, those are the roles. Um, what we've learned in our cases in Chicago um, is that police officers over rely and sometimes exclusively rely on the word of informants who are often wrong. Yeah. And they don't, the officers don't confirm that the, the target can actually be found at the address the the uh, the uh, the informant has given they don't do it. they don't do anything to actually tie the target to the address the informant is given you know very so it boils down to sloppy investigation over or exclusive reliance on informants um, and then uh, the in terms of the reforms. There's now, you know, we've, we've been working with investigative reporters in these cases in Chicago for, um, for two years, and we've brought a lot of these issues to light. Um, and eventually, as a result of uh, the media coverage of our cases, uh, the department started to make changes to uh, search warrant policy and training. Uh, and so the recent changes um, are a product uh, of our, our ongoing campaign here. And there are several important changes that are good on paper. It remains to be seen whether the department is actually going to supervise officers properly to make sure that the rubber meets the road. But now um, uh, every search warrant has to be approved by a uh, a bureau chief, uh, so it ha so there's much higher supervision that's theoretically required. Um, officers must verify a lot of other information that previously they were not required to verify. Um, there's some there's some language. It's very general and vague, but there's now some language about. Uh, looking out for children and being careful uh, to uh, not traumatize them during the process of executing a search warrant. 
Um, there's uh, the body camera requirement has been expanded or is in the process of being expanded to other officers. It was actually only applied to patrol officers in Chicago previously. Now it's going to apply, uh, I believe, to all officers who execute a search warrant. So there are, and there are a number of other, um, in the interest of time, I won't try to hit all of them, but there are a number of other important reforms that are in this new search warrant order, but no one yeah. is really sure yet uh, how well the, you know, officers are actually going to comply with them on the ground. That remains to be seen. Wow. Mr. Hofeld, we appreciate your time to give us the latest on this, and we'd certainly like to bring you back on um, to continue to update us about this case. And please give our love and peace and blessings to the Winters family. Um, it's such a tragic, it's such a tragedy that this is happening across the, in Chicago, but it's happening across the country, but it's, it's even more tragic when it's happening to small children. So please uh, let the Winters family know that we are certainly here for them and we would love to bring you back on to give us the next steps of this case. I absolutely will. Thank you very much for having me and I'll, I'll send your love. Thank you so much. I really appreciate it. Thank you so much, Mr. Holfeld. Mr. Al Holfeld, who serves as the family attorney for the Winters family. Now, folks, also out of Chicago, a police officer faces two felony charges for shooting an unarmed man in the back at a busy subway station last year. Officer Melvina Bogart surrendered to investigators Thursday after the Cook County State's Attorney filed charges of felony aggravated battery with a firearm and official misconduct. Bernard Butler were trying to arrest Ariel Roman for allegedly moving in between train cars. Roman was shot after a struggle at the bottom of the subway station's escalators. Now, after the incident, the police superintendent said the two officers should be fired for, quote, violating multiple department policies. Bogart and Butler were stripped of their police powers in 2020 and placed on desk duty. Bogart was released on her own recognizance. Her next hearing is on August 18th. If convicted, she faces up to 30 years in prison. Let me go back to my panel here. We have uh, Brother Michael M. Hotep, host of the African History Network show, Dr. Naomi Carter, Howard University Department of Political Science, and Kevin Bethea from JD Communications. He's a strategist there. Um, yeah, I, uh, first, where do we start with this case? Dr. Carter. We've talked about these police, these police-involved shootings. We talked about, I mean, even with the situation of botch rape. What's next? I mean, look, I think we—it's—you it, can't intellectualize this, right? You don't need to be a rocket scientist to know that something is rotten here. And I think when we saw here with Mr. Roman being shot in the back, I mean, again, moving between trains. 
Was it worth the time? And maybe asking our questions, a little empathy would go a long way. This man is resisting arrest because we know arrest can be catastrophic in our communities. We don't just get to come back from those. And so resisting arrest over something really small and petty, I mean, probably the biggest danger was to himself. So to then right. go from there to being shot in the back, right, in a busy train where that shot could have gone to anyone. It could have hurt anyone. It really made right. me think of Oscar Grant. And I think in Come many on. cases, like you just talked about in the previous segment with these children, the trauma that police are causing seems to be outweighing the good that the, the idea of them protecting the public, right, um, is, is supposed to bring. So I think, you know, if anything, this again, it goes back to your earlier point, which is is it about training? Is it about who we are attracting to the police force? Is it the fact that we've told the police officers that it's a us and them out there and every day that they have to fight to get home? And so whatever means, whatever force they use is okay because at the end of the day, we as civilians are the real enemies, right? Um, and, and, and again, I don't know. Right. I mean, again, we can say chief on the police and we can say all of these things. But for now, these people are still here and they're still employed. And we see, despite these calls to defund the police, he's actually investing more monies into police yeah. department. And so, you know, it's hard to say where what what to do. But I do think one of the things we can do is get rid of qualified immunity. And when we start making police pensions responsible instead of citizens responsible for the lawsuits that are rightly coming from these misuse of force and these abuse and murder cases, then maybe we might see some movement in how the police think about treating their publics. Kelly, I'm, I'm wondering when I see, and Dr. Cardi, I appreciate that for that insight. Uh, Kelly, I'm, I'm wondering when I look at cases like this, especially when it involves black officers, I'm thinking to myself, do the black officers understand the dynamic? I mean, I, I, I think that they do, but at the same time, it's like when you're in those very kind of, uh, in, the, in the case of, of being in that train station, I mean, when you're in that moment, do you really, I'm hoping that black officers at least say, you know what, maybe I should try to settle this in a different way. My concern is, is that black officers, if they're with, they're, uh, you know, for, with white officers, or they may feel like they're compelled to respond to a situation that is similar to what we've been seeing in, in over these past few years. Can, can you give me, can you help me to understand that, uh, that piece, Kelly? I can try. Um, well, first of all, uh, you keep saying JD Communications. That's not the name of my business. JD is my title. Um, oh, JD, I'm sorry. I apologize. Yeah, JD is my title for law, but sure, I just sorry. wanted to make it clear. So yes, ma'am. Yeah. So, um, just for clarification, but you're right. It is, I can't speak for the mind of a black officer, right? I do know that I have friends in the force who every day put their lives on the line to make sure that we are safe in, our, in my respective jurisdiction, right? I also know that when it comes to my friends, they have the mindset and are very aware of police relations within the black community. So they, to my knowledge, from what they have told me, they do everything possible, really go above and beyond uh, situations in which they 
don't do things like this, right? They understand that if they weren't in the uniform, that could be them with anybody else. Without the uniform, you are still a black man. You are still a black woman, and you are still considered a threat by way of your skin color. Your skin is the threat for a lot of these officers. So when a black person who is an officer does something like this, it makes me feel like, one, they should know better, but also it is just reckless. Like, in the legal definition, it is reckless because it feels deliberate, but it's also unjustifiable. And to an extent, it feels like they have a disregard for the situation as a whole in that you know what the police relations are in your jurisdiction that you are supposed to be protecting and serving. You know how your, your people are. You know, that's not an excuse for criminal behavior, but from a cultural standpoint, you understand us, at least you should, if you are us. So when things like this happen, it yeah. feels as though you basically breached your duty as a black member of the community and as a police officer because you're not protecting and serving. And you yeah. also disregard the fact that if you weren't in that uniform, that could have been you. So there's levels to it. Um, I, again, I can't go into the mind of it. I'm not trying to put blame on black officers, you know, like tokenizing them in a sense. But there should be a, a an awareness that you have as a black officer such that you're not in this situation. Um, and that you do everything in your power to de-escalate no matter what the cost is. You know, not saying your life, but a lot of these situations aren't necessarily life-threatening from the view of a police officer because they're the ones with the gun. They're the ones with the weapon. As far as I saw in this tape, they were unarmed. So yeah. they have all the power. They just need to use it responsibly and not reactionary. Um, and that's what I'm seeing here. And it's a shame because this did not have to happen. Absolutely. I want to take us down to now uh, Orangeburg, South Carolina, where a South Carolina police officer is out of a job after violently stomping on a black man's head during an arrest. And this is such an unfortunate situation, folks. But Orangeburg's Department of Public Safety Officer Lance Dukes faces first-degree assault and battery charges for the July 26th attack on Clarence Galeyard. Now, in this body cam video released by Gail Yard's attorney, Dukes orders the 50-year-old to the ground. Moments later, he stomps on his head. Now, Gail Yard suffered a bruise to his forehead and was taken to the hospital by paramedics. Orangeburg public safety officials say that Dukes was responding to a 911 call about a man carrying a gun. He was fired from the department two days after the incident and faces a maximum of 10 years in prison. Now, in this body cam video, we see it from the vantage point of another officer who actually did the right thing. Check this out. 
two incidents, one black woman officer who is the perpetrator, and then you have this other black woman officer who is trying to make things right. Um, you know, when we look at a situation like this, and you can see that the officer is trying to explain or trying to justify why he, why he brutalized this brother, but right. at, at some point, I, I'm just starting to feel like 
maybe it is just the fact that that's just how police are. And that when we have these conversations about police uh, interaction with the public, we should just say, that's what police do. Not, oh, they're supposed to do this and they're supposed to do that. No, that's what they do. That's what they do. Let's, let's keep it in the present moment. Let's keep, the, keep it real. Let's not sugarcoat it. Let's not talk about the, 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 the fluffy protect and serve. No, police will bust your head, kick your ass if you go against them. That's where the conversation, I think, needs to start at this point. Well, uh, we see that uh, some police officers are doing that, wh whereas others uh, are not and try to de-escalate a situation. Uh, I'm glad that sister was there to uh, be reasonable. And I I'm not sure how old she is. I like to know how old she is as well, because you have uh, some older white police officers, especially. It now, some of them can be younger, but especially you have older white police officers who are hardliners who have this mentality of uh, do what you're told, period, okay? And, you know, there are approximately 800,000 police officers across the country, approximately 18,500 police departments. Some do a much better job than others. Um, going, you know, going, so I'm glad that sister uh, was there, and I'm glad that officer was fired. Uh, there, there was, it was uncalled for him to uh, kick him in the head, uh, uh, kick no that brother in the head like he did. It was, that was totally uncalled for. Uh, going back to, uh, very quickly, if I could, going back to the first, uh, the, 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 the first police uh, topic that we talked about when, when you interviewed uh, uh, Attorney Al Holfeld. Uh, in that case, in Chicago, that's a, that's a, a, a very interesting case because um, tomorrow will be the two-year anniversary of that incident it took place August 7th, 2019. Uh, I'm trying to find out, were any of these officers fired? Because they entered the home without a search warrant. They then lied to cover up the fact that they got the wrong house. They lied and said they saw a suspect go into the house. Their body cam footage proved that a suspect did not go into the house, which means they lied. And mm. I'm wondering, okay, so what did you put in the police report? Did you lie in the police report also? Now, this took place two years ago. Has anybody been fired? Those are the, the officers who lied in the police report should be fired and prosecuted. Okay, so, uh, yeah, brother, that's a, that's a crazy case right there. No, and, I, and I'm glad, Brother Michael, that you brought that piece up because I think that, um, you know, a lot of times when you're talking about the follow-through of these cases, we often don't hear about it. We hear about the infraction or the violation, but we don't hear about the follow-through, unless they're high-profile cases. And, mm -hmm. and I'm hoping that in this case, with Mr. Gail Yard down in Orangeburg, South Carolina, the follow-through is that the officer was removed. Now, he probably won't be, because this is America, and those type of things don't happen because one of one in violation, a joker got to get 10 violations on his jacket. Was that, was that where the brother was kicked in the head who was on the ground? Yes, sir. Yes, sir. You just talked about. I think, wasn't that officer fired? Didn't they say that the officer was fired? I mean, he was fired, but I'm just saying... You're right. I, I'll just... It's just... Convicted. Yes, convicted. Prosecuted. Like, you need to be prosecuted, prosecuted. for assault. Okay. Right, right. Yeah. Thank you. Okay. So, I mean, I'm hoping that that leads to some level of conviction. Uh, something. Mm -hmm. uh, because we just don't see it. And we just don't see it. And, and, and it's not enough just to get fired. Hell, it's not even enough just to say, uh, we, 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 we want money from you. I mean, we need the whole package. We can't get an a la carte type of justice. We need the whole package at this point.
-hmm. So I, I, I'm hoping to see some real resolution. Look, folks, we got to take a quick pause. When we come back, we'll continue to have more conversation about um, some of the other cases. Plus, we got to talk about what's been happening with everybody from Dr. Dre's uh, uh, daughter. Uh, but first, before we go to break, let me tell you about Seek. Seek is a streaming platform for virtual events and virtual reality experiences featuring the biggest names in music, sports, and entertainment from around the globe. So take Seek Sizzle and uh, take a look at this. But the Seek's mission is to enable content creators to directly generate revenue from a global audience on multiple devices, including VR headsets, smart TVs, gaming consoles, mobile and desktop devices. Now, whether you're a gamer, music or sports enthusiast, Seek has something for everyone. Go to seek.com, that's C-E-E-K.com and use Roland Martin Unfiltered's discount code, RMVIP21, that's a smooth discount code, RMVIP21 for your next purchase. All right, and that's at seek.com. We're gonna take a quick pause. When we come back more, stay with us. It's Roland Martin Unfiltered. I believe that people our age have lost the ability to focus the, the discipline on the art of organizing. The challenges, there's so many of them and they're complex and we need to be moving to address them. But I'm able to say, watch out Tiffany. I know this road. That is so freaking dope. <laughs> George Floyd's death hopefully put another nail in the coffin of racism. You talk about awakening America, it led to a historic summer of, of protest. I hope our younger generation don't ever forget that nonviolence is soul force. Right. What's up, y'all? I'm Will Packard. Hello, I'm Bishop T.D. Jake. What up, Lana Well, and you are watching Rolling Martin Unfiltered. Roland Martin Unfiltered. I'm your special guest host for Raji Muhammad. Thank you so much for tuning in tonight. Folks, we want to send a big congratulations out to for entrepreneur and pop singer Rihanna. She is officially now a billionaire. This is all thanks to her Fenty empire. According to Forbes, Riri's net worth is an estimated $1.7 billion. Look at how much makeup she is selling. But how does that translate to the everyday black woman entrepreneur? And what can black women do who do not have a pre-billionaire Rihanna platform brand money do to become uh, successful business women? Here to join us about, to give us some insight for this is uh, Ms. Denise Hamilton, who serves as the founder and CEO of Watch Her Work. Denise, how are you this evening? Welcome to Roland Martin Unfiltered. I am great. Thanks so much for having me. All right, Denise. So first and foremost, I'm trying to figure out if you are the, the coach that get us to that Billy, you need to create a Watch Him Work 
How about that one? <laughs> we watch him work every day. <laughs> oh, there you go. There you go. <laughs> All right, so let's talk about this because mm -hmm. let me just, I'm, 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 I'm going to put this out there for full transparency, Denise. When I read that Rihanna was at the billion dollar mark, and this is according to Forbes, I mean, I was like, okay, should we care? I'm going to be honest. I'm going to be honest with you. Should we care, right? Mm -hmm. But then, after some thought and talking to my team, I was like, you know what? We should care because this is a very critical time to be financially successful. I mean, we're, of course, we're in the middle of a pandemic, but I think that there is a changing view that people have about money that, that is very, uh, that will uproot what has been years of get the get money mentality. There's, there's something changing, Denise, and, and I want to, you know, keep you, for you to share your expertise on this. I might be far off, but I think that, that, that now entrepreneurs are kind of coming into those business spaces, not just wanting money, but they want to make an impact. And Rihanna is doing that, and she's doing that very well. But how do you walk that line when you don't have the music, the modeling, the endorsements behind you to already give you that necessary push? It's a great question, and I'll back up a little bit. Your first question of should you care, we should absolutely care because the way so we Rihanna should. makes okay. Okay. we absolutely yes, should. School me, Denise, school me. If you can see it, you can be it, right? The example is really powerful. Plus, the way she made the money, she made the money being inclusive. She was a she was at the vanguard of inclusion when it comes to cosmetics, doing a full range of colors. She proved to an entire market that selling to us and valuing us is good business. And what a powerful message. So, yes, absolutely, we should 100% care. But your question is a really powerful one, right? What does this mean for the average Black woman that's starting a business, maybe starting a business right now? I got right. some good news and I got some bad news. First, right. the bad. No, 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 no. I got no, the bad no, no, news no, no, first. Let's do it. Let's do it. Let's do it. Let's do it. Bad news first. The average, according to Black Enterprise, this study is about a year and a half old, but the average um, Black woman owned business annual revenue was $24,000. Wait a minute. Hold on. Hold on, Denise. Hold on. Hold on, sister. Hold on, sister. $24,000 for the whole year? the whole year. That's the average, wow. Okay? Wow. okay? Which means we have more hobbyists than business women, right? Mm. And so we okay. have to be honest. We have to be honest about kind of what we're doing, how we're approaching our businesses, and how we're supporting and undergirding them for maximum success. That's why we need to see Rihanna out here killing it, because we there are some lessons that we can take from Rihanna. No, we don't have the modeling. No, we don't have the music. No, we don't have all of the things. But let's focus on the things we do have, right? And what we have is creativity, innovation. We are close to blue ocean, right? A lot of, there's so many businesses that need to be started in the Black community. So many. 
so many. So we're close to the customer. We understand what the needs are. Now we just have to layer on the business skills on top of that. We have everything that we need. We just have to activate it. So it's a great time. Like you said, like you said, there's never been a time like this. I call this black girl hunting season. Right. There's never been a time wait, like this. I, 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 want to, I want you to say that again so I can put it on a t-shirt and get rich. All right, go ahead and say it again. <laughs> it is black girl hunting season. Let's go, right? And the things we got to do is we just have to be more about our business. The, I, I shared the stat of the average revenue being $24,000. For white women, I believe that number is about $143,000, right? That delta, we got to close it. We got to close Dang. it fast. Because we're going to be impacted by this pandemic. Right. So here's the thing real quick, because culturally, and I'm seeing this, my wife is a business owner, and I know she does work and everything, but one of the things that her and I often talk about is, you know, uh, making sure that you're doing the, 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 the administrative work to make sure that the, your business is a legitimate business. Because we're in this cultural space where a lot of entrepreneurs, whether you're male or you know, man or woman, they're, they're assuming that if you put your stuff out there on social media and you sell it, you're a business. So, so help us to understand that it's important for you to get registered in the state of your business, to make sure that that paperwork is all straight and all of those things, just as much as it is marketing yourself. Can, can you talk to us a little bit about that? 100%. You know, there are so many opportunities to do business with corporate America right now, but you can't do it if your papers aren't in order, if your documents aren't in order, if you're not structured. We saw it with the PPP loans. A lot of um, Black people were not able to access those funds because they didn't have the structure of their business correct. They weren't paying themselves correctly, right? These things really matter. And I know it can be, it's so easy to just take that money in cash and not really do all the paperwork that's the easy way to do it but if you do it that way you have almost guaranteed that you'll always be small right and so we want you to grow we want you to expand we want you to be um the like as much as you want to be in terms of growth and you can't do it if you kind of act in a way that's small and amateurish the truth of the matter is all too often we ask amateurs for expert testimony Come right on. and it's time <laughs> It's hold on, hold on, hold on. <laughs> we, that's what we're doing, right? So so Linda is a cashier at, at a store, and you're like, hey, what do you think about this? Honey, Linda does not know. She loves you, and she wants you to succeed, but she does not know. So we have to challenge ourselves to push out and access resources from people who have actual businesses. And I love my, I love the coaching community. I do, but we need to be careful and vet people that we hire as coaches and make sure they have a demonstrable business and not just a coaching business, right? Like if, the, if, if, if your business is selling me coaching, then you are not necessarily exactly the right person to be giving me coaching about my perfume business or my laundry business or my dry cleaner, right? So make sure that you're getting great advice. And there are so many resources for great advice, 
right? Even your local library, that librarian, if you call them and say, hey, this is the information that I need, they will give you the demographics. They'll give you the um, the upcoming trends for your industry. What is happening? Like they'll share so much information with you. So you have to push past, and that can be intimidating sometimes, right? But we want you to push past that intimidation and access those resources because you need the right information if you're going to move forward and build a successful business. Denise, we got a couple of moments left, and I'm so happy and grateful for your insight and just to emphasize these things. Uh, are there are a couple of, you know, nuggets of wisdom that you can give to black women entrepreneurs out there. Can you give us like two or three nuggets that we need to keep in mind? Absolutely. You want to have a successful business, the first thing you have to do is make room for your dreams. Mm. Make room for your dreams. Clear out the distractions. Cut your expenses. You may have to cut down some activities. Maybe your kids play four sports. This season, they will have to play two because you have to make room for your dreams. Right? right? You have to create the financial environment and you have to create the time. Maybe you got to get up an hour earlier or stay up an hour later. Uh, whatever you got to do. But what we too often do is we have our lives and we just put our business on top of it. And that's just not going to work. All right. That's the number one. What's number two? Mm. The other one is, I got to say, team up. Y'all, we have too many people that are selling five candles and she's selling six candles, and she's selling eight candles. Boy, if y'all got together and teamed up, you could sell a thousand candles, right? So find people that have like that are like-minded, that have similar interests, similar passions, and let's figure out ways to work together to get the bigger product. So rather than selling, you know, seven candles at the flea market on the weekends, can we team up and sell a thousand candles to Sony or a thousand candles to a bigger corporate? Um, Customer, maybe, but you don't know if you don't try. Structure those relationships well, paper it up, get, you know, have everything in order. But I guarantee you, we can do more. We can go further together than we can alone. There it is right there. Denise, we appreciate your time. I love it. Make room for your dreams. I love it. Team up. I'm, I'm, I'm feeling it. How can people get more insight? Because you got some wisdom. You're dropping some jewels on us tonight, Denise. So how can people get more wisdom and more guidance from you and the uh, keep up with Watch Your Work? At the site, we have over 7,000 videos that are giving advice for women. It's a free service. Everything from how do you ask for a raise? How do you tell your boss you're pregnant? How do you get money from the bank for your business? All kinds of information about how you can be a successful professional woman because we don't, we just don't believe you shouldn't have to have powerful friends to have powerful information. So we try to make that available to you. So just visit us at the site and we'd love to see you as a part of our community. Absolutely. Denise Hamilton, founder and CEO of Watch Her Work. Denise, I'm I'm gonna pull you up on this one. Watch him work has got to be in the in the you know in the works there. You gotta you gotta have that coming. <laughs> we'll talk about it. We'll talk about it. Call me. <laughs> <laughs> Definitely appreciate you. Thank you so much, Denise Hamilton, for joining us here on Roller Martin Unfiltered. Folks, uh, I want to uh, share with you another story as we uh, talked to about tonight, and then we're going to get you back to our panel. But if you haven't heard, Dr. Dre is under fire. Apparently, uh, his 38-year-old daughter, who is the daughter of his ex-wife, Lisa Johnson, his eldest daughter, Latanya Young, says she's homeless and have been, has been living out of a rental car 
that is costing her $2,300 a week. Now, how has she been handling and dealing with herself? Well, she's been, you know, doing DoorDash and Uber Eats. Um, she's been doing other job side jobs, like working in a warehouse for about $15 an hour. But she says that the billionaire producer has not been there for her for the past 18 months. Now, she did admit to the fact that she had received in the past, you know, money to pay for her rent and allowance, but that all ended in the beginning of 2020. Now, part of the reason that she believes that Dr. Dre, her dad, has stopped giving her money is simply because she talks to the media and that she talks about things that her dad doesn't want her to talk about. As a result, she feels like she's being punished and that she can't communicate with her father and that the only way to communicate with him is to go through his people. Mm. Now, I wanted to bring this, this issue up and I want to get the, get the insight of my panelists tonight because we're asking the question, when do you stop taking care of your child? When does this growth, this, this stage of growth begins? And, and, and I thought this is interesting because there's still a lot of unanswered questions, Dr. Carter, when it comes to Latanya Young and some of the trials that she has been suffering from. Um, she does, she is a mother of four. The four children do not live with her in the car. They do live with family and friends. I don't know. Uh, what the relationship has been between her mother and her and why her mother, Lisa Johnson, is, has allowed her to live in a car. But see, this is a 38-year-old woman. So I'm, I'm, I'm trying to understand, you know, is this, is this a situation of arrested development? Is this a situation where, um, you know, a child is, yet, is not ready to move on or, you know, take it to the next level? What are we seeing right here in dealing with this situation, and what can we glean from it? Well, you know, I will say this. I'm a child of the family, so this is, this is something that I think has been a conversation in my family about when you're too enmeshed with your children and when is enough. I knew at a young age that there was going to be a time when my mother would say no, but I also knew that if I fell on hard times um, that I could go home. I, I still know that, right? Um, I know that I can do that with, with my parents. But that said, you know, it's hard, you know, being an outsider looking in. We don't know, as you said, all the ins and outs of their relationship. Maybe it's a strained relationship, at least from some of the things she said. It appears to be that way. But I also think, you know, many of us want to sort of armchair uh, psychologize this family and tell these people what they should be like. And most of us are only saying this because we know that Dr. Dre is a billionaire. We say, well, he has it. He can do it. He can take care of her. Yes, he can. He can take care of all of us and then some, right? Um, <laughs> but what I should do as a parent is something separate. I mean, as you know, we are talking about a 38-year-old woman. We don't know what her circumstances are. We don't know why this has changed, right? And so I feel uncomfortable saying what Dr. Dre or any other parent ought to be doing for their grown child. I know, at least for me, I think the expectation was, I'm going to put you in the best position I can to be able to care for yourself. And if it comes to a time when you cannot, because of something, right, an act of God, job loss, or some traumatic event, then yes, 
you can rely on family. But that's my family. I can't say what this looks like for other people. And I also know that my mother had very clear boundaries around what was acceptable and what was allowed. If I'm a substance abuser and other things, I am absolutely not allowed in her home. I'm not coming to her home. That was made very clear to me. So there are limits that I think parents can put on their children, regardless of age, particularly when they are adults. Um, about what is acceptable behavior. I think that's true for any person, right? Boundaries are always good, and you don't have to explain to people why you put those boundaries there, just that you have. So I'm not going to say whether he should be doing something for his daughter or not. I think it's an unfortunate circumstance, um, and, I, and I have a lot of empathy um, for her current circumstances because no one should be housing insecure. No one, whether your parents are billionaires or not. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely, Dr. Carter. Um, I want to bring uh, Brother Michael. What's your take on this? Because uh, something that Dr. Carter said that I think that is a, like a, a, a big message that is often in the Black community, at least in my household as well. I can be wrong, Brother Michael, on your end. But I remember my dad, he probably said, well, I, I didn't say it quite like that. Yes, you did, Dad. You told me when I was 18 years old, I better hit the road, man. I, I, you got to get up out of here. <laughs> now, that has been a part of our culture for a very long time, that you get to, quote, unquote, adult age, and next thing you know, your parents are saying, all right, like, baby, mother bird, all right, you got to go out there and fly. Is it time for us to revisit that culture and say, maybe that's not the right move in this day and time? Maybe I should let my daughter stick around. Maybe I should let my son stick around a little bit longer until they complete college and things. Is that the right narrative or the right cultural point that we need to be uh, following at this point, Brother Michael? Pandemic, it throws things off and the, and the, and the rate of rent is, 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 is skyrocketing. The price of homes is skyrocketing. The price of new cars is skyrocketing. The price of used cars is skyrocketing. The price of rental cars is skyrocketing. So I think right now, I mean, <laughs> this is a wild card, right? What we're going through right now is a wild card. But when we look, not knowing all the details here of this situation, but just looking at the story from the Daily Mail and the Root.com, um, she, she was getting assistance from a father uh, up until like 18 months ago or so. Right. She, 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 she works at a warehouse. She makes $15 an hour. She also does Uber and Uber Eats and DoorDash. Okay, right. she's homeless, living in a rental car. Right. She said it's a, she said it's an SUV that costs twenty three hundred dollars for three weeks, and she only paid for one week. Okay, if you don't pay after a certain amount of time, they're gonna report that car stolen, and you're gonna be arrested in that car. So, in a situation like this, luckily her four kids are not with her in that SUV. Okay, luckily they're they're staying somewhere else. But this is like a dire situation. This is, to, from, from what I understand of this situation, not having talked to Dr. Dre, not having talked to her, but what from what I understand of the situation, is not a situation where uh, it appears where uh, he uh, he's giving her money right now and she just keeps blowing it and didn't pay the rent. You, you know what I mean? It's, it, it, it's not like a situation where she, she got money and she blew it on something else and didn't pay the rent and then got evicted. Okay, she's she's in the car. So in a situation like this, I don't know what the relationship is like. Apparently, she hasn't talked to him in a number of months or possibly years. You know, uh, you know, my daughter's four. If my daughter was 38 in a situation like this, and I was in a situation to help her, whether we're on speaking terms or not, I don't want my daughter homeless. 
Okay, I don't want my daughter homeless. I don't want my daughter in a situation like this because if something tragic happens to her, yeah, he's gonna have to live with that. Yep, there it is. There it is. Uh, Kelly, what's your take on it? Um, I was split when I first saw it because on one hand you're almost forty and it doesn't seem like you have your stuff together as a mother, as an adult, um, as someone in this world who you know, by all accounts, is of sound mind and body and is able. Um, but on the other hand, uh, let's be real. Dr. Dre does not have the best track record when it comes to his treatment of black women, specifically those in his family or those he, bring in, he brings in as his family, being a wife, being a girlfriend, what have you. Um, so my initial take on it is that it's none of my business because... This is, it's literally not my business. But if we're going to use it as a conversation piece, it is interesting to see how many people or which people are leaning towards the the notion of my baby is my baby and they're going to be good regardless and the whole kicking you out of the nest come hell or high water. Um, mm. I feel like the latter is more of an Amer a Black American thing because when I talk to and when I'm, my friends who are uh, black people, but uh, different cultures, it is normal to stay home um, until you are about to get married or you are completely stable enough to become independent. But in saying that, that does not mean you don't have responsibilities at home. So it, it to me, there feels like a disconnect in that conversation where it's like, oh, is he going to just take care of her or whatever? Or... Is she just going to be out on her own? There's nuances to this. And in the real world, there's real nuances to it. So, like, if you're living at home and you're an adult, that doesn't mean you don't pay bills. That doesn't mean you're not responsible for the home. It's just, The home's just not in your name. So, more or less, it's like an apartment, but your parents own it. Um, that's how I've always seen it. And that's how people I know who are in that situation see it, because that's how it's being treated. It, but it's a collective effort to keep the home. So, again, I'm split. At the end of the day, it's none of my business, but I wish her well. Mm, there it is. There it is. Kelly, thank you so much. Folks, we're going to take a quick pause. When we come back, we got some updates for you about some of the uh, police brutality cases that we've been following. So stay right where you are and continue to support us here on Roller Martin Unfiltered. We'll be right back. White supremacy ain't just about hurting black folk. Right. You got to deal with it. It's injustice. It's wrong. I do feel like in this generation, we've got to do more around being intentional and in resolving conflict. You and I have always agreed. Yeah. But we agree on the big piece. Yeah. Our conflict is not about destruction. Conflict's going to happen. Amber Stevens West. Yo, what up, y'all? This is Jay Ellis, and you're watching Roland Martin Unfiltered. Welcome back to Roland Martin Unfiltered. I'm your special guest host, Roland, uh, Faraji Muhammad. Roland is off tonight. Uh, folks, we want to have, have a few updates to some stories that we've covered. Do you remember that Atlanta, Georgia police officer who was caught on video kicking a woman in the head? Well, 
he's no longer a cop. The Atlanta Police Department's Office of Professional Standards recommended the termination of Sergeant Mark Theodule, and Chief Rodney Bryant agreed, saying, quote, I want our officers and the public to know that I do, I do not take terminating employees lightly. But I also understand that the Atlanta Police Department must be held to the highest standards, and with that comes accountability when departmental policy is violated. Considering all the facts, I support the findings and recommendations made in this case. Officer Bridget Citizen, the other officer on the scene, was reinstated. The investigation found Officer Bridget Citizen did not violate the Atlanta Police Department's duty to intervene policy. This, there was only one kick. Uh, I want to go back to my panel, Michael Hotep uh, and Hotep, Dr. Nyambi Carter and Kelly Bethea. Uh, with this particular situation, uh, and Brother Michael, we'll start with you on this one. Uh, with this particular situation of what's happened in Atlanta, is this justice? Well, with the officer uh, being fired? Yes. Uh, well, that, that appeared to be assault to me, so uh, I think he should be prosecuted as well. Is it, That's a good start that he's fired. Because sometimes mm -hmm. we see, oftentimes we see situations where the the officer is not fired. So uh, right. that's a uh, that's a that's a uh, a good start. And, and this was blatant. It was caught on camera. You know. Now it, it's just it's just interesting. He it just happened to be a black officer, and he gets fired, right? Mm -hmm. <laughs> I, I want to see the videos of the white officers doing things like that and get fired as well and get prosecuted also. But um, that this is a start. But that's assault. He, 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 he should be prosecuted. He should be prosecuted also. Dr. Carter, I know that sometimes terminating officers, it can be a, a, a sticky situation. Let me tell you, I, I have to tell you personally, in Baltimore, um, I have always railed against the uh, FOP here, the Fraternal Order of Police Union, because the union oftentimes taken the, uh, the stance uh, with the officer and not the stance of truth and right and justice in some, in my case, in the cases that I've seen here in Baltimore City. But, you know, it, it, I mean, at this point, you know, it, what, what needs to be done from that, from that place where the unions feel like the unions have to separate themselves uh, from these officers and their bad acts and that they can't continue to protect these officers, even though these officers are part of the force, but they, they shouldn't be allowed to uh, continue to protect them. You know, it, I feel like that's the part of this conversation of police brutality that often gets overlooked. Well, you're exactly right, Faraji, in terms of the outsized influence that police unions have in many of these cities and localities where we see these events occurring. And you can have, you know, officers be as blatant and as wrong as day, and you still have these police unions saying, this person deserves their job, this person deserves representation, and all these other things, right, that, that um, basically this person should get out of jail free because they're police officers. And I think we have to start changing that mindset where police officers are subject to the same law. They just happen to have a job where it's enforcement of the law, but they're not above the law. I think that's part of it. But I think the other part is fraternal orders of police or the unions, excuse me, have to also define what their mission is. And their mission ultimately is to support and to protect the public and to protect citizens, not police officers' bad actions. If we want to, if they want us to believe this sort of 
few bad apples comments, then that means you cannot support the corrupt. That means you cannot support the abusive. That means you cannot support the disrespectful, and so on and so on. And oftentimes, we say that police unions see their effort as being supportive of officers and officers only, and not to truth and justice and righteousness, right? All of the things that we think um, police officers should be about. So I think we have a long way to go, really, um, before we can change this culture, and that's part of it. And I think making um, police officers more accountable is going to start with making um, these unions less influential than they are. Uh, Kelly, how do we how do we empower the police chiefs to take more of a stand when they have bad actors within their department? This police chief said, considering all the facts, I support the findings and recommendations made in this case. However, he still seems, and I'm speaking of Chief Rodney Bryan, he still seems to be an anomaly when you're talking about police chiefs kind of going against their officers. Uh, how do we empower them to make those decisions? I think it comes from uh, societal pressure, which is mounting at this point, especially given the recent history of police brutality within the past uh, 45 years, uh, starting with uh, Trayvon Martin. Actually, that was more than four or five years ago. But I remember with Trayvon Martin and the cases since then, there has been this mounting pressure by way of the Black Lives Matter movement, by way of Black people just being, you know, damn tired of it all, you know, uh, pushing and pressing their officers and the powers that be to have something uh, changed within the system. Um, what I have noticed in that pressure, however, is that the response that these police chiefs do or the people who are in position to hire and fire the officers who commit these uh, atrocities is that it almost feels like it's easier for them to fire immediately black officers because subconsciously they feel like you know, they were going to mess up anyway, somehow, some way. And if they fired this one, it's like, look, we do discipline. Look, we do do this, but you're not doing it for your white counterparts. So it's there's levels to it and there's some nuances to it, but it all starts with societal pressure and really just being aware of, of, of racial tensions, being aware of the cultural shift, meaning police officers are not the end-all, be-all when it comes to law anymore. They are no mm -hmm. longer the overseers of the country anymore. We are accountable for our own actions. Community policing is a thing within the community, not necessarily having police officers in the community to police. There's a difference. That culture is shifting. And the more police chiefs uh, across jurisdictions, across the country, realize that the culture is shifting, that even their own police officer base uh, is shifting. Like, the people coming in, their mentality is also shifting. The sooner they realize that, the the quicker change will will appear in policy and in, uh, in action and mm -hmm. in policing overall in this country. And yeah, I would, I would totally agree with you on, on that, Kelly. And I think that and I love how you said that there has to be like a, a, a solid pressure um, because even though folks aren't uh, protesting in the street as much as they used to, as we saw last year, um, the fact is, is that we have to keep the fire going. And, I, and I, I'm, as an organizer, as an activist, 
that is one of the hardest things that I think people uh, grapple with when it comes to these issues. Consistency is key. Consistency is everything. That's one of the hardest things that if you want to see the change that you believe should happen, you have to be the, uh, the catalyst for that change. And, and Brother Michael, I'm going to give you a couple of seconds just to kind of speak to that. But you've got to be the catalyst of change. You can't just say, we did this last year and expect stuff to change this year. Well, consistency comes from actually having a plan. Fact. And oftentimes Fact. people Fact. oftentimes people confuse just protesting as the plan. Protesting, marching, the, you know, ma the, those mass protests, those are tactics. That's not a plan. And, and this is one of the mistakes that people make even evaluating the uh, civil rights movement, okay? Uh, what's lacking today are targeted, sustained economic withdrawal strategies, targeted, sustained economic boycotts. Because oftentimes we're not operating from a plan. We, you know, the, many people mean well, but they really haven't studied those strategies that worked properly in the past. Dr. King, April 3rd, 1968, his last speech, I've been to the mountaintop, which is 43 minutes. People focus in on the last two minutes when he talks about getting to the mountaintop. He said, we have to always anchor our external direct action with the power of economic withdrawal. We have to mm. always anchor our external direct action with the power of economic withdrawal. This is, this is what's missing right now with, the, with trying to uh, force through the For the People Act. The, the, the proper economic pressure is not being put on corporations who will then put pressure on Manchin, Senator Joe Manchin, Kristen Sinema, because they help finance them, and then some more Republicans in the Senate, because you need 60 votes to get the bill passed in the Senate. So a lot of people say this is not your grandfather's civil rights movement. Well, you need to go study your grandfather's civil rights movement and what it came mm -hmm. out of, because it, because it was successful, but it was derailed. It right. was successful, but see, it was derailed. It was not. It was not able to complete. And then the next level, the the Black Power movement comes out of SNCC in 1966, and comes out of the Civil Rights Movement. So we have to understand these movements together. And then at the same time that the Black Power movement and the and the Civil Rights Movement was taking place in the U.S., the African Liberation Movement was taking place concurrently on the continent of Africa. And today, by the way, is uh, Jamaica's Independence Day. Uh, August 6, 1962, Jamaica declared their independence from uh, Great Britain. And it's well said, well said, Brother Michael. Speaking of movement, folks, it looks like the number of COVID cases are increasing daily, 100,000 new cases. That is the new daily average of the U.S. COVID coronavirus cases per day. Take a look at these numbers. That exceeds the number of transmissions last summer before vaccines were even available. Take a look at this. I want y'all to I want y'all to take a, take a hard look at this. Here are the national numbers, folks. 36,305,074 cases with the death toll now being 631,899 reported deaths. The majority of new infections are among those who are unvaccinated. That's what that's that's based upon the data. Now Dr. Anthony Fauci has urged vaccines are the best protection against more severe illness and death. And according to the White House data director, Dr. Cyrus Schaffer, uh, Schaefer, excuse me, half of the U.S. population is fully vaccinated against COVID-19. Now, folks, you know, yesterday I was on the panel, had a conversation about vaccinations and all of that good stuff. But we're seeing numbers 
And, and again, I am not supportive of the fact that we have created this culture war of unvaccinated versus vaccinated. This was a global pandemic. This started off as a global pandemic where we're talking about being together. When we're talking about we're in this together. The vaccine comes out and guess what happened? It has created division. The vaccine has been and been rolled out and it has started issues among family members. Now, we weren't already seeing each other because of the virus itself, but now we don't want to see each other because of vaccinations. And so we're being broken apart. And I'm seeing this country, especially in black and brown communities, there are some deep divides over this issue. But I think that we need to keep some things clear. I and mean, this is not about whether you want to choose to get the vaccine or not choose. I mean, that's your personal choice. That's your personal decision. However, what I want to look at is who's benefiting from the great division that we're seeing happening in this country. Because is the American people benefiting from it? Are black people? Are brown people? Are who's benefiting from this, this division? I want to uh, go to my panel on this, and Dr. Carter, I mean, I, I'm seeing this, and I'm seeing these cases, and, and I'm seeing the culture wars. I'm seeing, look, we need mass mandates. We need people to wash their damn hands. We need people to stay socially distant. Stop going to damn music concerts that have thousands of people, you know? We need to see all of these things, but at the same time, let's not be forgetful of the fact that this government, the United States of America, the corporations that are supporting the United States of America, Pfizer and, and, and all of these places, Moderna and Johnson and Johnson, and they're, they're just mishandling of everything they touch, that this government never had our health interests at heart. And that if you decide to get the vaccine, you want to get the vaccine, but please know what you're getting yourself into, Dr. Carter. I guess I don't like that last part of know what you're getting yourself into. What would you be getting yourself into besides a vaccine and lessening likelihood you might die? I'm in Washington, D.C., where black people are 48% of the population and 80% of the fatalities from COVID-19. So I right. think... That, that sort of language of, well, I don't know, is kind of the problem. Now, listen, has the government done black people wrong? Absolutely. I'm one of those people who believes the truth doesn't need a remix, right? You don't need to make it a conspiracy. It's not a conspiracy, right? It's in our face. We know all of the things that have happened to us. And while black health may not be the government's interest, it's our interest, right? And I think we have to be very clear about that. And we can talk about, well, the government has done us wrong historically, therefore we don't need to take the vaccine. But the truth is we are more likely to be employed as frontline employees that exposes us to the vaccine. We are also more likely to have the comorbidities that make us more susceptible to dying from these diseases, uh, from this disease. But we are also less likely to have access to health care. All this moment is doing, the vaccine isn't doing anything. It's the people talking about the vaccine that's creating the division. The vaccine is here to protect us, hopefully, um, from some of the worst complications of this disease, because having the vaccine doesn't mean you can't contract COVID, but it certainly right. means you can spread it to your unvaccinated friends and neighbors and the people that you love and potentially kill them, right? That's right. what it does mean. 
But it, it's certainly the case that the talking heads and those around us are creating this division. And while we may not like the language of the vaccinated and unvaccinated, it is true that our communities have lagged. And lots of the conversations that we have had about whether people have take the vaccine or don't take the vaccine um, are not about telling more truth about what the United States has, has done to black people. And I won't even say that far into the past, right? It's not been that long ago, right? No. Um, where we've seen some of these egregious sort of medical errors. But there's also the case that one of the things that I think makes this moment different is the fact that this was one of the times that we had a global concentrated effort on a singular uh, vaccination. And I'm not going to yep. tell black people, don't get vaccinated for COVID-19. That's like I'm not going to tell them, well, don't get the polio vaccine or the measles, mumps, rubella, va uh, rubella vaccine or any other, other vaccines. No, uh, white America may not have had our health or this government may not have had our health in mind, but can black people benefit from this? Yes. And I'm not going to tell black people who are dying disproportionately from this virus to continue to just sort of act like, you know, this vaccine can have no upside for them. I think that people yep. can continue to have questions, but unless you have become a virologist, a chemist, an immunologist overnight, I think we can think about maybe some of our trusted messengers around health. And there are a number of them. The president of my university is a physician who's been working around this messaging to black communities around COVID. That I think we can be more responsible messengers. It doesn't necessarily mean that everybody will want to get the vaccine, but to, I think to, to sort of play footsies or play putty, pity pat with this virus that is killing us at an alarming rate is also dangerous and reckless. Uh, Kelly, speaking of messaging, um, the, the, the rise in COVID cases is why New York City is the first place in the country to impose a vaccination requirement uh, for people who want to even do the small, you know, social things of dining indoors at a restaurant or going to a performance or even going to a gym. Um, yeah, according to New York, NYC.gov, New York, there are 978,000 COVID cases and over 33,000 deaths. It's those numbers and the threat of the Delta virus that has gotten people to take this process so far. My question to you is, when we're talking about, you know, presenting vaccine cards, is this a sign that we're going down a slippery slope of preventing access to certain people to go into places like black and brown people to go into certain places who may not be taking and taking all taking a vaccine at all? Is this a sign that this is this might go into a space of, of you know, imposing on one civil liberties? It's not imposing on one civil civil li liberties because you do still have the choice to take the vaccine, um, uh, or not take the vaccine. But at the end mm. of the day, if you don't take it, there will be consequences, and the consequences you not being able to do what you want to do fully. I do not understand why this specific vaccine is what's getting people hemmed up about not taking it. You have already been immunized for several diseases before you were 12 years old. Why is this one any different? No, you didn't well, grow five it's, heads it's, from taking the POTS vaccine. You didn't get three eyes from getting the polio vaccine. Well, we have I been mean, in the house for almost two years 
waiting for a vaccine. We finally get it. And now all of a sudden you're backtracking on your want to have it because of a history that has been misapplied to the dissemination of this specific vaccine. I understand people. No, let me, please let me finish. I understand people's fear and apprehension as black people to, uh, to the United States public health system. It has not been conducive to our liberties. It has not been conducive to our way of life historically. But at the end of the day, this vaccine is not targeted at taking black people out. It is, if anything, trying to keep the black workforce alive because they need us. So I can understand that logic of you not wanting something that is not only to keep you alive, but to give you the opportunity to do what you used to do before this pandemic hit. I think that it's it's important that we can't just gloss over the fact that this level of distrust that we have in our medical uh, community, the medical industry of this country, is after years of failed, uh, after years of medical experimentation, And looking at some of the the companies, like Johnson & Johnson, for example, here's a company that are involved in two major lawsuits right now. One is knowingly distributing uh, the powder that has been, um, you know, that has the toxins to give cancer to black women. There are a group of black women that that have taken Johnson & Johnson to court. The second one that came out in the New York Times just a few days ago that Johnson & Johnson has been a contributor for the opioid crisis. It's one thing to say, okay, let's have a vaccine, but when you start looking at the companies that the United States government wants us to put our trust in, and it's a company like a Johnson & Johnson, then why should we trust them? We often you talk don't about all the- Fine, if you don't you want don't the Johnson & Johnson vaccine, don't take it. We have Moderna, we have Pfizer, and we have other ones on the way. I under, Again, I understand the apprehension that Black people have to medical companies and to the public health system as a whole in this country, but we are doing ourselves a disservice when we are literally in the middle of a global pandemic and these vaccines aren't just targeting Black people. They're not deliberately... Um, shutting us out or putting us in a predicament in which we will not be better. So, so let me ask you very quick, Johnson and Johnson. 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 So, the Johnson so and Johnson happened? case is different. All the uh, all of the situations in which you have uh, delineated regarding uh, the the lack of care and the just negligence of the public health system and private health. Uh, specifically in this country, all of those uh, examples aren't applicable to this case. The only thing applicable in the examples that you gave us is the fear attached to it. And we are misapplying the fear of Johnson & Johnson in those cases. We are misapplying the fear of the Tuskegee experiment and Henrietta Lacks and the other uh, atrocities, several atrocities committed against Black people by way of private and public health uh, situations in this country. That fear is misapplied here. I'm not saying it's not warranted. I'm not saying it's not valid. But the fear right now is misapplied because of the messaging of, oh, if they did this, then this is possible. We're 
literally following the science of this vaccine. We are literally saying, scientists, black scientists are on the front line saying it is safe. I took it. We have been doing the research for vaccines like this for decades. It just came out now because we need it. And it's not well, FDA. Let me stop you right there. Just because in Baltimore, Johnson & Johnson, for example, has a lab in Baltimore. And a few weeks, of, uh, maybe like two months ago, it came out right here in Baltimore that they had mishandled 15 million doses of the vaccine. They had put the wrong, wrong ingredients into the vaccines. I mean, when you're saying that, that, that this that level of fear can't be applied to the case, I mean, we're going into a, a new situation and I think that but the you're only talking thing about we can million doses that weren't administered. The only thing that we can they caught those 15 million doses, and that's I'm my sorry? point. They caught the doses before they were administered. But they were already tainted. They were but tainted. They weren't doses. administered. It doesn't matter if they weren't administered, and that's 15 million against the hundreds of millions of doses that Johnson and Johnson put here's, out. Here's my point. So my here's thing what is. I'm saying, I understand, my again, I understand we, 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 fear, we but it's misapplied here. It's misapplied it, here. It, it, and information it, it, such as that, that you're exasperating and exacerbating the fear, is what is going to kill us Black people in this I pandemic. Mean, when you are perpetuating it, 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 fear very, 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 as opposed to distributing facts, that is yeah. what's going to kill us, not a vaccine. Because they're right, not even going to take it because of information in. that you're spewing right now. Hold on. I want to get Michael in, and I appreciate you, sis, but I want to get Michael in as we get trying to get some final words because we got to wrap up the show. But Michael, conversation. Okay. <laughs> One, I get medical advice from medical professionals. One. Two. Exactly. Uh, you, the question that you asked, your original question is who is benefiting from this. These are the culture wars. Fox News right. is benefiting from, from this. Rupert Murdoch, who got vaccinated, is benefiting from this. Uh, Donald Trump is benefiting from this. Donald Trump got vaccinated also, so did Melania. They just didn't do it in public. And see, Fox News, now Fox News had to institute a vaccine uh, mandate, meaning if you want to work at Fox, you got to get vaccinated. After they lied to these dumbasses that keep watching Fox News, because at some point, them and then Republicans, they, there's a lot of the Republicans in the, in the GOP, a lot of them in the House of Representatives, j just had a press conference where they were encouraging people to get vaccinated because they realized, you know what, we keep lying to these people and we're killing the dumbasses that keep are stupid enough to keep voting for us. Now, where are we going to keep finding people dumb enough to keep voting for us if we keep killing them? So people benefiting from these culture wars have been Rupert Murdoch, have been Newsmax, have been Fox News, have been uh, people like the uh, My Pillow guy. OK, people like that. Then the other thing is, and hopefully rolling to bring uh, Malcolm Nance on, counterterrorist expert Malcolm Nance, because a lot mm -hmm. of this disinformation dealing with uh, vaccines and anti-vax information is coming from Russia. That's another thing. And that's something that people like really are not focused on. A lot of this anti-vax stuff, and it didn't just start like this month. It's been coming for the past few years. Malcolm Nance has been talking about this for about probably about two years that I know of. Now, lastly, I'll wrap up with this. I've talked about this before. Um, we don't make these same arguments when it comes to Viagra, when it comes to Cialis, 
when it comes to cigarettes, go to American Lung Association website and look up what the ingredients in cigarettes. There are 600 ingredients in cigarettes. Only a fraction yeah. are on the package. Cigarette right. smoke produces 70 known cancer, 70 known carcinogens, which are cancer-causing agents. What is on the side of a package is a big-ass warning label that says, warning, smoking cigarettes could be hazardous to your health from the Surgeon General. People, African-Americans smoking cools in Newports and things like this with a menthol in it, and the menthol targets African-Americans, okay? We, we bypass all that stuff, okay, but then just focus on the vaccine. All, all this other stuff, all this other medication that we take, we don't make none of these arguments for all that other uh, infra, uh, uh, medication. So questions, sure. questions are good. I'm not against our people having questions, but address yeah. questions to medical professionals, especially those that know your medical history and know your risk factors. Gotcha. Gotcha. And, and I think to your point, Brother Michael, it talks about you know, the whole conversation about being immunocompromised and all of those things. And I would agree, go to a medical professional. Don't wait for a talking head to give you medical advice. But I think that it is important that we continue to have the conversation as Brother Roland has been doing here on this platform, especially among black folks, well-thinking, critical-thinking black folks, that we need to have these conversations. Look, folks, I appreciate your time. Uh, Kelly Bethea, JD, communication strategist. Kelly, thank you so much for your time. Dr. Naomi uh, Carter, who is uh, the uh, professor at Howard University for the Department of Political Science, and Brother Michael M. Holtef, host of the African he uh, Heritage Network. Uh, thank you so much African for African History Network show. Oh, sorry, okay. African History Network, excuse me. Thank you yep. so much for joining me in the conversation tonight. Folks, I want to thank you for joining us here on Roland Martin Unfiltered. As you know, we can't do all of this. Great production can't have this show without your support. So if you'd like to support us so we can continue to bring you the stories that matter to us, make sure you send us some cash. Show your love. Hit up Brother Roland on the cash app at RMU Unfil RM Unfiltered. You can go on PayPal, you can go on Zelle, you can go on Vimo and do all that you can to support Roland Martin Unfiltered. God willing, the Alpha Brother will be back on Monday, back in the driver's seat. And uh, he will talk to us a little bit about some of the things that are happening. So I appreciate each and every one of you for joining us. Thank you for all of our Facebook and YouTube watchers. Thank you, thank you, thank you. And of course, we thank you for so much for, uh, for the great conversation, all right? So as my big brothers say, thank you for joining us. Let's continue to bring the phone with Roland Martin Unfiltered. I'm your special guest host, Baraji Muhammad. It has certainly been a pleasure to talk to you tonight. Thank you, Brother Roland, for giving me the wonderful opportunity to sit in the big chair to represent you. As always, we end the week by showing love to our Bring the Funk fan club. Check it out. Peace. Xfinity has free premium networks for everyone this month, no matter what kind of entertainment you love. Addicted to true crime? Catch killer cases and more spine-tingling shows on A&E Crime Central. Crave adventure? Explore Asian action movies on Hayah! 
Searching for something extreme? Check out skating, snowboarding, and more on Fuel TV Plus, the global home of action sports. And find crowd-pleasing bops on iHeartRadio's Hit Nation playlist. There's new free shows and movies to love every week. Say free this week in your Xfinity voice remote. The wait is over. The shy is back on Paramount Plus, and the stakes have never been higher. Everything changes on the South Side when a new threat comes to power in the Showtime original series from Emmy winner Lena Waithe. Battle lines will be drawn, alliances will shift, and danger lies around every corner, leaving everyone to wonder who they can trust. Visit ParamountPlus.com slash shot to get a 50% discount off the Paramount Plus with Showtime annual plan. Offer ends July 14th. Subscription auto-renews. Restrictions apply. If a new house is on your wish list in the next five years, grow your savings faster and experience your dreams with an Ohio Homebuyer Plus account from Kemba Financial Credit Union, a savings account specifically designed to save for a new home where you can earn 7% APY, a $500 matching bonus, and a $1,500 mortgage closing cost credit. Learn more at Kemba.org. Offer expires March 31st, 2025. APY equals annual percentage yield. Restrictions apply. NMLS 292230. Equal housing lender. Federally insured by NCUA. From BBC Radio 4, Britain's biggest paranormal podcast is going on a road trip. I thought in that moment, oh my God, we've summoned something from this board. This is Uncanny USA. He says, somebody's in the house, and I screamed. Listen to Uncanny USA wherever you get your BBC podcasts. If you dare.